0: right Revelation chapter 15 is where we're at and today we're actually going to do 15 and 16 which sounds impressive but it's really not there's not that many verses uh, but it's rare that we get two chapters however chapters 15 and 16 go together and are important I think to keep together The, the chapter breaks are always one of those interesting things you know of course it wasn't the Lord that put those in. It was scholars later on. And sometimes I'm like, why there? <laughs> just the most random place. Boom, end of the chapter. And that's what this one feels like. Um, but as we've been going through, chapter 14 that we looked at last week was like an overview of things to come. And, and we see that a couple of times in Revelation uh, where we just get like this little, these little snapshots of this is what's going to take place. This is what's coming, and then it goes back, and we fill in the details, right? Overall, there's a chronological order to the book of Revelation. We've talked about that. That's important that, uh, you know, there's beginning, middle, and end, but we get these little things that uh, you can also look at them almost like overlapping storylines, you know, if you're into movies and books and stuff like that, where they give you like a storyline that's taking place, and then you go back, and you get more detail, or you get it from a different perspective. And so we've been getting that as we get the perspective from heaven and then the perspective of what's taking place on the earth. Uh, Chapters 15 and 16 are going to be somewhat of that same thing. There's going to be some overview or overlapping storylines, however you want to look at it. And uh, as we get to the bowls of wrath. And these are going to Chapter is going to cover some some large spans of time where we take a big jump, and um, again we'll see it from heaven's perspective. We'll see it from Earth's perspective, and then in chapter seventeen and eighteen we're going to back up and we're going to get the details. We're going to find out more about the Great Babylon and events surrounding Babylon, and then in chapter nineteen we're going to get the details or more details on the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, we've seen a few little things that point to that. We're going to see some more of that today, but then we'll get the details later on as we move on. So let's pray one more time, and we'll get into chapter 15. God, again, we are so grateful that we get to gather together to study your word. And we submit ourselves and we submit this time to you, Holy Spirit. Have your way. We pray that you would teach us and you show us how these things apply to our lives. God, give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Chapter 15 of the book of Revelation says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those Who had victory over the beast, over the image, or over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. And they sing a song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who Who shall not fear you, O Lord? And glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen, having on their chest, having their chest girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. John sees a sign in heaven. And we've we've talked about this before, that he's He's not seeing the actual thing here. He's seeing a representation of it. And it's a little bit confusing because he sees this sign in heaven and then immediately gives the interpretation of what that sign is. And so he speaks of this sign that he sees. He says it's great and marvelous, but that it's speaking of the seven angels and the seven plagues. This is like a preview for John. That John has been seeing all these incredibly intense things. And I think we have trouble understanding how intense it really is right i mean we read it here and go wow john was seeing it john was getting every detail and and then trying to get us to understand the things that he saw and so the intensity of all that he's been observing uh now there is this great sign in heaven and it's like a mile marker to john john this is where you are in the revelation the end is pretty close and, and he calls this sign great and marvelous, which is like beautiful and breathtaking. He's in awe of what he sees. But I think it's important that uh, we understand. I, I really don't think it's because he's seeing the angels that, yes, they're amazing. They're glorious, but that's not what it's about. And it's not about the, the last plagues necessarily, but it is about the meaning of the sign that these seven angels with these plagues mean that the wrath of God is going to be completed. The finish line is is just before John. And then all that he's seen and all that has taken place and all that is meant to him, he gets this little glimpse of the finish lines ahead. John, you're almost there. The the end of this horrible seven-year period is, is almost there, right? And he goes, and it is great and marvelous to know that it's going to come to a completion. I was thinking about that. You know, when we go through hard times, or at least when I do, like if I catch the flu or something, um, you know, you sick for a couple days, and I get this weird sense like, well, this is my life now, you know? <laughs> I'm going to be like this forever. There's no end in sight. I'm just going to be sick all the time, you know? And you get this, like, really horrible perspective on life. And, and I can imagine that for John, it, it could almost feel that same way. It's like, is this how mankind is going to continue? Is this what it's going to be like? How long is this? I mean, he knows it's seven years, but how many details does he have to see and how many things is he going to watch take place? And so again, I think for him, it's a huge relief and just to know that there, there is a finish, that this is all going to be brought to completion and it's great and marvelous to know that. In verse two, he speaks of the sea of glass um, that is before the throne of God. Now, we saw this earlier in chapter 4, and and remember that, not to get into all these details again, but if you remember, the throne room of God in heaven, it's also called the temple of God in heaven, uh, is, of course, very important. And when he gave instruction to Moses to build the tabernacle, which would then be the the blueprint for all the temples built after that, he gave very specific instruction. I mean, if you read through all that he gave Moses, it's like, and you're going to use this type of thread here and this color of material there, and you're going to have this kind of pattern. It's very, very detailed, right? And the importance of that is, is because the tabernacle on earth was a representative of the temple in heaven. And he tells Moses, you build everything exactly the way I tell you. And this is why. Because it's a picture of things to come, right? So... Uh, we talked about the, the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat above it. It was a picture of his throne. And, you know, everything has meaning. Well, there in the temple was this huge bowl called a, a brass laver. It's about six feet in diameter, if I remember right. And it was filled with water. And, and it had very great significance that when, you, when a priest would enter the holy place, he would have to pass this brass laver. And in that day, it would act as a mirror. And so they were to look into it, they'd see themselves. The idea that they must be cleansed before they can get any closer to the Lord. Right? It was a reminder of their sin. It was a reminder of their need to be cleansed. And of course, the the big picture was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice cleansing us of all of our sins, right? Of Jesus Christ upon the cross and the shedding of His blood. Now, the sea of glass before the Lord's throne, is what that labor represented. Only in heaven it's different. Those that stand there aren't reminded of their sin. They're reminded that they have been made pure. Right? When we saw it in chapter 4, it was just called the sea of glass. But here, it's a little bit different. Because not only is it a sea of glass, but a sea of glass mingled with fire that here are these people standing there on the sea of glass that have just come through the most fiery trial in the history of all of mankind. And they have overcome and had victory over the beast. Um, as I thought about that, victory over the beast, you know, uh, we... We saw in chapter like 13, it seemed like, man, the enemy was winning. You know, he's chasing Israel, he's chasing down the believers, he's having victory over them, and everything seems to be going the way of the devil and the antichrist. Man, they're just top of their game. And then chapter 14, we get the preview of like, nope, it's all gonna start falling apart. And and here we see the people who have come through this tribulation standing there on that sea of glass, and and the Lord says that they have had victory. And what hit me about that is that from the world's perspective, and even from the, the devil's perspective, these people lost, right? The world, we're always, in a worldly sense, looking towards the hero escaping at the last moment with their lives. You know, oh, they're, they're in sudden peril, and there's no way out, and then they get out, and you're like, wow, I didn't see that coming, right? <laughs> these people died. And from the world's perspective, they're not seeing these people having victory. Going, these are the losers. They they died. They didn't overcome. They didn't win any battles. They didn't win any victories. That's the world's perspective. Jesus looks upon them and says, "You are victorious. Didn't yield to the way of the Antichrist. You didn't follow his teachings. You didn't fall for his lies." You stood against him and the devil, willing to sacrifice your very lives for your faith in Jesus Christ. You are victorious. I love it. I love just getting that heavenly perspective on what really matters, what's going to matter for all of eternity. And verse 3 says that they sang a new song, or they're singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Well, why Moses and the Lamb? And we can understand singing a song of jesus or to jesus why is moses added into this or mentioned here well moses uh in scripture is the lawgiver right god gave moses the law to then give to the people well jesus paid our price in order to bring us grace and so what we're seeing here the idea of this is that this is the perfect combination and balance of the law and grace together right the law has a purpose still has a purpose but grace is what we need. And so this song is is that idea, is this perfect perfect harmony of the law and grace together. And they're, they're singing these words of praise and joy and celebration. Again, like we've seen before when the other saints of the tribulation were mentioned, none of them regret their decision. None of them are going, you know, that's not quite what I signed up for, that whole persecution and beheading thing. That's I thought I was going to get like, a new car and be, always be healthy, and you know I was, I was naming and claiming all kinds of stuff I didn't get, right? None of them are, are upset with their lot. None of them are questioning God's justice or goodness or judgment. In fact, those are the very things that they are singing about, exalting Him in those very characteristics. And verse four in their song says, "For all nations." shall come and worship before you. Um, I love this. And I think there's a couple really important parts to what's being said here. I think they're very applicable, especially the first one uh, to us, is that when it speaks of the people of every nation making up the kingdom of God, making up the kingdom of heaven, to us, we kind of take that for granted. We're like, well, sure, Jesus loves all the little children of the world, right? <laughs> yeah, all the colors, all the people. But understand that in that day, in John's day, the idea of, of racial equality was unheard of. I mean, every race saw themselves as being superior over someone else. And and it was divided up by, by kingdoms or by area or ge- geolog- geographically, whatever it might be, But they all saw themselves as being more important than somebody else. The idea of equality just really didn't exist at all. And that the gospel coming in, the good news of Jesus Christ coming in saying, we are all equal. That every tribe, every language, every nation, every person is welcome in heaven. It was cutting edge, blowing people's minds. And in the same way, it's good for us to remember. Like I said, we kind of take that idea for granted, but it's important, I think, especially with all the racial tension in our world, in our country right now, of, of every different group being upset about what's not being done, or what has been done, or what should be done. And there's so much talk about equality. You know, but here's the thing: is that while there's so much in good intention to bring in equality, Jesus is the only one who brings it period. However you, whatever question you want to ask, whatever debate you want to have, when it comes right down to it, Jesus is the only one who can bring equality because it requires us to realize that no matter where we come from or what color our skin is or what nation we were born in, we are all sinners lost and without hope. Everybody. And that every single one of us can only be saved by one. Puts us all on an equal playing field. We're all lost with only one chance of redemption. And He brings that equality to us. Now the second thing that this is speaking of is, is really the same thing uh, that Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. Where he says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. We're going to read in chapter 20 of an event called the Great White Throne Judgment. And at that judgment, every single person who has ever existed will stand before his throne. No one's left out. No one's excluded. Everyone will be there. And at that time every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord now to the believer yeah hallelujah to us we're like yeah absolutely Jesus is Lord it's going to be a shout of victory it's going to be a sh- it's going to be exalting who he is and what he's done for us but to those who have been opposed to Jesus as we've seen in the tribulation as we're going to see even more here as we we get into chapter the rest of chapter uh, Fifteen and sixteen. They will also say it, but it will be a shout of defeat. It will be words of of admitting that they were wrong. They will still say it. Everyone will say it. All of mankind will confess. Some out of joy and some out of defeat, but everyone will say it. Now verse five said so the temple in heaven was open. And now um, we see the seven angels that were mentioned earlier. So first it was a sign. There wasn't actually angels standing before John. It was that signpost telling him this is what's coming. And now we see the actual angels there, and they receive these seven bowls of wrath. Um, and even though the temple is open, and this is one of those things I, I just I don't understand at all, but I find myself in awe of the idea, if the temple is completely open. But because of the glory and the power of God, no one can enter it. In heaven. Like angels, they would see the temple, which is like, we can't go in. It's just too intense right now. And until these last seven bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth, nobody enters the temple. Now we go on to chapter 16. We see the actual... Bowls beginning to be poured out. We'll look at the first three. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And the first bowl. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul, loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, who was, and is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for this is their due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. As we've talked about before, one of the main points of the tribulation period. And I think very often it's misunderstood. The people will look at uh, the book of Revelation and the events that we read about there and think that this is God just being mean to the remainder of mankind, just punishing, punishing, punishing all these things. That's not the point of the tribulation at all. Uh, We've talked about that one of the main points is to bring Israel to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah. But another one is for all mankind to understand the dividing line that Jesus is. That there's no more gray area on, on who they think that Jesus is. Because right now, you can talk to a lot of people, oh, I think Jesus was a good guy. You know, maybe he was uh, somehow divine, or maybe he was this, or maybe he was that. Or he was a good teacher, and, and he cared. Or, but they won't take a firm stand on who he is. And it's important, even now. I mean, I, just talking with somebody the other day, having a conversation, it was just, who do you say that Jesus is, was my question. And that was the kind of response I get. There's only three options, right? We know this, but I think it's good to remember there's only three options with Jesus. Either he was a liar. He knew he wasn't God, but he said he was. He was crazy. He was a lunatic. He thought he was God, but he wasn't. Or he was the Lord. He was exactly who he said he is, right? That's all you get with Jesus. He can't be anything but those three, and in the tribulation, it's going to be even clearer than that because they've seen Jesus come on the clouds to receive his church. They've seen the great and mighty sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. They've heard angels preaching the gospel, calling out to all mankind worldwide again, every tribe, tongue, and language to repent and receive Christ. So no one at this time is going, Who's Jesus? Jesus who? You have to make a decision of being for him or being against him. For those who are against him, it really is a clear decision. Part of that's the mark of the beast that we talked about last week. And in that decision, it's really saying, we don't want you, or we don't need you, and we don't want anything from you. This is really the idea, we're going to do more as we talk about Babylon. Because it was the same idea in the original Babylon of building the tower. We don't need you, God. Look at all we can do on our own. We, We can work together. We can accomplish great things without you. And the new Babylon will be the exact same heart behind it all. It's really the heart of man at this point. God, we don't need you. We don't want you. We don't want anything from you. And so even these bowls of wrath, Instead of seeing them as God pouring out just horrible things on mankind, understand what's really happening is it's Him removing His protection from mankind. Because if you don't want Him, you also don't get anything that comes from Him. What makes hell hell is it is removed of all things of God. There is no love, there's no forgiveness, there's no kindness, there's no remorse, regret, or repentance. And you are alone, it's hell. It is the worst of all mankind being, I mean, of our personality, of our character, of our sin nature, living forever, and all things of God being removed. And this is God shutting down the earth. Okay, you don't want me? Then I'm just going to start moving stuff. It's turning out the lights. It's turning out the heat. it's, it's, It's shutting it down. Right? And and that's really, I think, how we need to understand these bowls of wrath. That as he has them poured out on the earth, it's him removing his protection. People want to be separate from God, they're actually getting exactly what they've asked for. And the first one falls on each individual personally. In fact, their their personal health. These horrible it says, Foul, loathsome sores. Yuck. I mean, that's all you, you just read that and go, Ooh, yuck. Foul is the idea is a horrible stench, and loathsome is disgusting to look at. And as gross as it sounds, it's also important that it says that it's, it's on everyone who has received the mark or worshipped the beast. We're taking the number of his name. These horrible sores fall on everyone who has this mark. And this isn't just like an allergic reaction to the ink or whatever it is that they, you know, somehow stamp the sign on you. It's the manifestation of their souls on the outside. That inside they are spiritually dead. Foul and loathsome. And now it's on the outside. And it can't be hidden. It can't be covered up. It doesn't matter what you wear, clothes, or as far as like, you know, trying to hide this. Perfume, you're just going to have foul and loathsome with the smell of daisies or something, right? It's just going to be horrible. Now the next, and, and, and again, so these, these sores, a person could live through this. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's painful. Yeah, it's embarrassing and gross and all that, but they could live, Right? But now the next ones are poured out upon the earth. The second on the sea, and the sea turns to blood, and everything in the sea dies. Now again, some people say, well, that's only speaking really of the Mediterranean, or maybe even the Sea of Galilee. Um, Everything that we've seen in Revelation has been delivered on a worldwide level. And so then to suddenly back up and go, no, no, this is just a local event that's going to happen, that doesn't fit in the context of the entire book of Revelation. Everything that's taken place, unless like when Jerusalem specifically is mentioned, right? We'll see that where, uh, later on. But whenever it talks about the seas or the earth, it's speaking of a worldwide event. And in this case, the seas and everything in them die. The third bowl is poured out on the springs of water, and all the drinkable water in the world turns to blood. Now here's the thing. Without the seas, the world cannot sustain life. That something, and I'm I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's something like 80% of the world's oxygen actually comes from the sea. That's about right, Austin, yeah? That from plankton and other, other things in the sea. And so by killing the ocean, you start a chain reaction that cannot be stopped. The world can't sustain life anymore. Again, shutting out the lights. The next is upon all of the fresh water. Again, mankind cannot survive without fresh water. So they've got whatever they've saved, whatever they've held or whatever, maybe whatever they think they can somehow get by with. But it's only a matter of time. The days of mankind on the earth are numbered. Just from these two events. And I find it interesting that two different angels basically say, amen. You know, the angels, I, I'm really looking forward eventually to being in heaven and getting to know the angels. I think they're going to be a very fascinating group of, of individuals, right? I, first of all, wonder if they, I just get the feeling they don't like us that much. <laughs> it, it's just how, you know, I read it, and I always kind of picture, them like, okay, I'm going to deal with you because he told me to, right? And and so here are these judgments these horrible judgments are poured out on the earth and the angels basically go it's about time <laughs> amen I've been watching these people from the garden of eden to the end of the tribulation and it is about time lord amen you know and another angel doesn't really even say just says, he's from the temple he's off somewhere else he goes amen you know <laughs> enough already And they they point, again, just to the goodness of the Lord. You are righteous, O Lord. True and righteous are your judgments. Again, there is nothing misplaced about what God is doing here. The people tend to, to point to things like this in the Bible and go, how could a loving God do that? Because He is righteous and He is true. And because evil must be dealt with. And because mankind is going to reach an apex where, where no one else will ever be saved. And he won't allow that to go on. Righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And verse 8. It says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory? And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and the king and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they nod their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed God, the God of heaven, because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its waters became dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, that they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. And then I saw the seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven, from the throne saying it is done and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great and great babylon was remembered before god to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath and then every island fled away, and mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. With a fourth bowl, the sun begins to scorch men. And again, people point to it and go, well, it could be solar flares, it could be radiation, it could be the earth has shifted off of its axis or it's even shifted somehow off of its uh, uh, course. Whatever it is, the sun now has a very different relationship with the earth. And I think it's interesting because I think we take, again, we take the things for granted. We take the sun for granted. I watched a documentary, it was a couple years ago now, but it was a whole documentary on the chemistry and the physics that take place in the sun. It was terrifying. When you realize what's taking place, you're like, I've always just, oh, nice sunny day, it's warm, and I, that's about as far as I go thinking about the sun. It's absolutely terrifying what the sun does. You know, it just flings stuff off into the universe all the time. These like huge explosions, these, you know, lava eruptions They just happen to not hit the earth. And I mean, if you realize that's happening all the time, (laughs) it's, again, terrifying. And this is God just removing his protection. Why don't they hit the earth? All these events, and again, it happens fairly regularly, these massive explosions ejecting all kinds of craziness out into into the universe, and none of them hit the earth because God's just like, no, you know. Just keeps us safe on our course. And this is him going, okay. Just removing that hand of protection. And these events begin to take place where men are being scorched. And the idea is brutally scorched. Not, they're not being killed by it necessarily, but there's this horrible, painful heat that's taking place. And again, it's sad to read, that the people know that this is from God, they know that this is a judgment, and yet refuse to repent. Again, these aren't just random events. They're not just going, wow, isn't it a coincidence that, you know, God's been like so prevalent in this society that we've we've seen Jesus, we've had to make a decision, and now all these things are going bad. What a weird coincidence. They know that this is a judgment. They know that God has the power over these things. And instead of going, we were wrong. We, we've stepped out of line. Man, they just stiffen their neck and they dig in their heels and they go, we will not repent. We will not change. Now from God's side, I think it's important it is still possible for them to repent. Right? Because if it said, and, and nobody repented, well, they had the option to. But from mankind's side, they have no plan to repent. And certainly for those that have taken the mark of the beast, like we talked about last week, some something takes place in taking that mark where it is an absolute pledge and an oath that no one will ever back out of. That even though they have the option to repent, no one ever will. Not one person that takes that mark will change their mind. And even as we see, this isn't just speaking to those that have taking the mark, but it's everyone who has not come to the Lord, man, they are refusing to repent and not one of them will change their mind. Verse 10 is the fourth bowl is poured out on the throne and the kingdom of the beast, on, on on that kingdom of the Antichrist, right? And so again, a few chapters ago, this guy was top of the world. He seemed to be everybody's favorite and, and had all the power. didn't couldn't lose in any situation it seemed like and now it's all falling apart and judgment is poured out specifically on his kingdom on his throne the first worldwide kingdom that he has put together and it is this kingdom that is now filled with darkness again it's like what's taking place spiritually is now manifested in the in the reality right that the darkness that he has been, he now is encompassed in. His, his kingdom and everyone in his kingdom is encompassed in this black, inky darkness. It's similar to the judgment that God poured out on Egypt, right? In Exodus chapter 10, where he poured out a darkness. And we talked about that before, that there's something that's said about that darkness and it creeps me out every time, just the idea. It says that that darkness could be felt. It wasn't just a lack of light. There was something to it that you could feel that darkness. Well, this is worse. Because not only can you feel this darkness, but it becomes a source of pain. Now, that might have to do with the sores that they've already received. But on top of it, this darkness somehow magnifies it because it's, it's put together there that they nod their tongues because of the pain. And that's linked to that darkness somehow. Again, horrible. But what do they do? They blasphemed the name of God and they did not repent. The sixth bowl is poured out on the river Euphrates, which is dried up to make way for the kings of the east. The idea is that the riverbed of this massive river, the Euphrates, is going to be like a super highway for the kings of the east when they start heading towards that day of Armageddon. And uh, We're going to get more into that when we get into chapter 19, but this is something that Again, for whatever reason, that water is completely shut off. And it makes an access for these kings to come at the Antichrist now. So this guy that was ruling the world thought he was at the top of it. Now we're going to see the kings of the earth start to come against him. All the armies are going to start descending upon him. Uh, as those that remain are going to try and fight for the, the last things of earth. And then there's this weird thing about these three demons that come out of the mouths of the beast and the the dragon and the uh false prophet describes them like frogs. which really has to do with uncleanness in the in the Hebrew mind, uh, frogs were an unclean, disgusting thing, and so that's the idea there that these demons are this horribly unclean thing, and there's a lot of ideas about what these frogs are or these demons are or why they come out of the mouths of of the three. Of the unholy Trinity. Honestly, it's all guesswork. We don't know. What we do know is that these are sent out to gather the, the armies of the world. Whether, whatever sources or means that they're going to do it by, but they bring everyone together, and it's all for that point of bringing them together for that final conflict there at uh, at Armageddon. And in this, it's like this interruption. You know, I don't know if you guys thought of it. As we went over verse 15, suddenly it's the Lord saying, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And it just seems like this total interruption to the story that's taking place, right? These frogs are going out, these demon I just like to picture them as frogs. They go out and they gather all the, the armies together. And then all of a sudden the Lord is like, hey, I'm coming like a thief. And it's, it's like this little interruption to, to the reader to go... Man, make sure you're right with me. Man, these events are going to go down. These things are going to happen. And and it's going to catch these people totally by surprise. But you be the ones to be watching and looking for my return. And it is an interruption, but it's an important one. It's just to the reader to know, hey, the Lord is coming back. And we don't have to be a part of any of this. The seventh is poured out on the air and a voice from the temple says, it is done. And then there's this worldwide earthquake. We saw another worldwide earthquake in chapter 6. Remember, that was the beginning of the tribulation on the earth. It's like that and the rapture happen almost simultaneously. But in that one, it says that every island and every mountain are moved from their place. That's a pretty huge event. But this one here is even... Larger. Verses 18 through 20 describe it as the largest earthquake that's ever taken place since man has been on the earth. And this time it says that every island and mountain fled away and were not found. Leveled. It's crazy to think about. The amount of massive power it would take for every mountain and every island to just be gone. Shaken to the ground. Never seen again. And right behind it, are these hailstones weighing about a talent. That's about 100 pounds. So something weighing 100 pounds, falling really at pretty any distance from the sky, reaches terminal velocity pretty quickly, and is has a huge devastating power, just one. And it's this massive hailstorm. And it tells us really how big it is because compared to the earthquake, that's what people blaspheme the name of God about. You know, I mean, again, it's a rough day. These people are having a pretty bad day. Everything's just like crashing down around them, massive earthquake. This hail hits them, they're like, really? Hail? Come on. You know, and, and they, that's the thing that they start complaining and, and rebelling and blaspheming the name of God about. Again, comparatively, it tells us how brutal it is. These things... Again, are all happening and it shows us how the kingdom of the earth, the kingdom of the Antichrist are just falling apart. His whole plan that he's really marketed and sold the whole world about hey, let's rebel against God and let's not follow Jesus. It didn't go in so good. Everything's just disintegrating around him. But yet people still are not repentant. No one's going, oh, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't have followed this guy. They're so entrenched in their own sin and wickedness that they just won't change their mind. And there's a lot of things, you know, in this chapter that I thought about that, you know, to kind of sum it up or trying to bring it together into an application. And and what the Lord really kind of spoke to me was, was very out of what I expected. Because in looking at all of this and looking at the... You know, we could talk about the grace of God by giving them time to repent. We could look at the wickedness of man, refusing to repent. But the the thing that stood out to me and that overwhelmed me is thankfulness. And I know that might seem a little bit odd because of all the horrible things we just read about. Where do you get thankfulness from? But this is something the Lord's been showing me in a lot of different ways in the last week or so. The great power of thankfulness. And how many things in this chapter that we just don't think about. We don't think about how the, the Lord protects us uh, from the sun and from the earth and from water being poisoned. And all of these things that we just take for granted and go, that's just life. This is just what we get. We get all of these things in life here on earth. No, we get them only by God's goodness. And then we start making things a little bit more personal, going, well, okay, let's look at my own life, my own past, my family, my friends, the life that I've been given, and health, and even trials that I have that have brought about good fruit in my life. And man, I'm just overwhelmed with thankfulness. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's something that, man, it changes our direction. It changes our focus. Not just to say, Lord, thank you for the day, but to be overwhelmed. I had... I wasn't sure if I was going to share this. I had an event just last week, last Saturday, the most unexpected time of thankfulness. So if you don't know, Candy and I are in the midst of we're selling our house, and so we're doing all these things to fix it up. And one of the things that I had to do is get up in the attic and clean out. There was like just stuff, stuff that had blown in over the years, and there were some bird nests and stuff like that. But it's just gross, right? It's the attic. And, And it's not a very big attic, so you can't really get up there. You're kind of crawling through the trusses, and I'm cleaning everything out and filling stuff up. And I get all the way down to the end, all the way down the very end of that, There's trusses. And the last set of trusses are super narrow. They're just like this little tiny triangle. So you're like super claustrophobic trying to get through there. And get all the way down to the end, you're covered with dirt, and it smells bad, just all these things, right? And I get down to the end, and I look back down the other direction where I've just come from, and suddenly I get all these flashes of when I built that house. And I remember being in that same place when I framed it. I remember being in that same place when we started putting down the metal and all these things, and then I started thinking about how God has taken us so far in, in those 18 years since we built that house, and I was just overwhelmed. I mean, completely overwhelmed. I'm in this sneaky, dusty, dirty attic covered with sweat, and I'm like, Lord, you're so good to me. <laughs> it's awesome, but it's so good, and I think for us, we need to do it more. I know for me, I need to do it more than I, than I do. To just stop and consider how good the Lord has been to us. You know, certainly as we read through this, we go, Lord, thank you, I'm not going to go through this. Thank you, I don't have to be caught in my own wickedness and sin to the point where I just will not repent. Lord, I, I want, I've already repented. I want to be right with you, right? But to be thankfulness for the very lives, the very breath that we're given. And so here's your assignment this week. Whether you want to make this a part of your devotion time, whether you want to make this something on its own, spend five minutes. Shut everything off. Get your phone away from you. Don't be in front of your computer. Find five minutes of quiet and be thankful. Just begin to start. Maybe it's in the broad things. Lord, thank you that I haven't been hit by a meteor. Thank you that you have protected me from those types of things. Maybe it's really broad, but let it narrow down, narrow down until you're very specific about the things in your life. And and be overwhelmed by His goodness. Be overwhelmed that He is true and righteous are all of His judgments and that He loves you desperately. That's your assignment this week. Every day, five minutes of thankfulness. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that these things that we have read about today again show your great power and your great love, that you desire for all mankind to come to you. It is not your will that any should be lost, but all would repent. God, thank you that you've called us. Thank you that you've saved us. Give us The words give us the heart to bring the good news to people who are still wandering in the darkness. Let us be those that get to see your kingdom expanded and added to as people come to you. And God, thank you. Thank you for our lives. Bring to mind and bring to right before our eyes the very things that we have to be thankful for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.